there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another K-Cup mini episode of Time for Coffee. By the way, K-Cups come in three sizes, single, double, and triple shots, or roughly one minute, five minutes, or 10 minutes in length. So if you don't have time to throw back an entire caffeinated career conversation, these K-Cup mini episodes of T4C can give you a quick caffeinated fix, whether you're on the go or you only have a few minutes to binge. So grab your mug and take a chug, because it's time for a caffeinated career triple shot K-Cup with my guest, Brenda Denbeston. Let's dig into what the heck you do as a continuous improvement manager of continuous manufacturing at Orca. What is a continuous improvement manager? So a continuous improvement manager is essentially someone who looks to improve systems, processes, and workflows for the benefit of reducing costs, reducing the time it takes to do an activity, and essentially improving the experience overall. So in my role, I am responsible for standardizing the systems and processes that we use on our site and predominantly the safety systems. So I have had the pleasure of introducing new management of change system and a new permit to work system from our historical systems that are being offloaded and really helping people understand the why, what's the benefits of our new system, how does it work well for you, you know, because everyone wants to know what's in it for them. (laughs) And also creating the new standards and training that will facilitate implementation of these new processes. So could you take us into a typical day? We are doing this interview here in mid-January of 2021. The coronavirus is in Australia, even though it is much, much, much better there than it is here in the United States, but you are working from home. What does it look like? What maybe you could take us into what it's like now and what it was like before the coronavirus hit when presumably you were in an office? Yes. So what it's like now at home is, I suppose, plenty of meetings. (laughs) And really, these meetings are around multiple facets. So I'll sort of get into the day and I'll have a look at the prior day's performance on all of our plants. So I'll review the performance and see if we've had any incidents overnight, see if we've made any, how we tracked in terms of production, and also if there was anything that was highlighted as an issue. So this really helps me to sort of keep track of what are our customers, what are our sites finding as issues that could potentially become bigger in the future. So this is more for me to keep track and keep a finger on the pulse before something gets bigger than, you know, than her. So that's the first aspect. And then the next thing is really to start having some meetings with the sites, particularly around projects that I'm running. So right now I've got some projects around migration to a new document management system that I'm progressing. So there may be a couple of meetings with my four different sites around how they're progressing with that, looking at creating a procedure and getting that reviewed from the various stakeholders, as well as then catching up with people to collate our weekly reporting. So I also coordinate the reporting for our division. So it's a little bit of a multi-hatted role. (laughs) And again, it's a role where I don't have direct influence over the outcome. I need to liaise with plenty of stakeholders, get resources on their plans, find time for their people to attend training, find time for them to 
advise on where they've gotten to and to certain milestones for my project. And so, yes, a lot of talking. <laughs> and the only difference, I guess, main difference with now and when I was based on a site or in an office where I can go outside and perhaps do some safety interactions. So I typically like to go out and see people in action, people who are perhaps operating a plant or people who are working in a lab or in the workshop and sort of understand, hey, what are you working on today? What are the safety hazards you're exposed to as a part of this job? And how are you controlling yourself? How are you avoiding you know, getting hurt and ensuring that you go home in the same way that you came to work today? So that's the, the, the key difference between being in the office and obviously having a chit chat and stopping by people's desks <laughs> and having a discussion. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. So when you talk about the plants that you're interfacing with, what are those plants actually producing? What are they working on? So the continuous manufacturing plants are making an oxidizing agent, which is used in the explosives industry. So we typically have ammonia plants, ammonium nitrate plants, nitric acid plants, and cyanide plants. So these are the plants that I'm referring to when I say walking around on the plant. And essentially, they're massive. They're <laughs> a large footprint full of pipes and valves and large networks of tubes, tanks, uh, things on a large scale. So you're walking around. Most of this stuff happens within you know, within the tanks. You don't really see things flowing around. You mainly go on your computer. So right now, I can probably go onto my computer and look at the process and make sure everything's at the right temperature and operating fine. So I could sort of dial in now and have a look at how things are trending. Well, that would so actually that's, be kind of cool. Are you able to do that and share your screen? Oh, not right now. No, I can't do that right now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, because that would be super cool. I, I had to ask. Prior to the current job, that you have. You actually worked as a senior manufacturing engineer on ammonia. What did that entail? So as a senior manufacturer, manufacturing engineer, my role was really around creating the processes, standard processes, again, sort of similar to what I segued into in my current role. So fine-tuning the systems and processes that help our operators on the field, so those on the ground operate the ammonia plant. So this is creating work instructions that are streamlined, updating procedures to start up and shut down the process, clarifying process control instructions. So really providing the support information that helps not only our operators to run the plants, but also our maintainers when they need to come in and maintain a plant, how do they need to make sure they leave that in a safe situation for us to start the plant back up again. Cool. And prior to that, you worked on uranium in yes. solvent extraction. And I have no idea what that means or what it entailed, Brenda. Yeah, so it's very complex. I don't know how I can simplify it, but essentially solvent extraction is a separation process. And what is mining essentially is a process where Let's, let's talk about the front end of the process. You dig up a whole lot of dirt and you really don't want to separate that dirt so you can get the valuable mineral, which in this case was uranium. So it has to go through a whole lot of processes. You need to grind that rock so it becomes a lot smaller. Then you need to add acid and various chemicals so you can leach out <laughs> the valuable mineral into a solution. But now you want to separate that solution even more so it can become concentrated. So if you think of like your concentrated dishwashing fluid versus like something that's not concentrated, you know, a small little drop makes for big, you know, washing up <laughs> in your sink. So similarly, you want to sort of concentrate all that up and solvent extraction is a process that concentrates up your uranium into the final product. 
So it's a separation process. You're discarding all the other minerals, for example, copper, gold, and silver that could also be in the solution. And then you're only treating the uranium and getting that to a final product. And we used to ship that through to France and some European clients where they use that for electricity generation. Got it. I, I would imagine that it's used in nuclear plants. Is that right? Correct. Uranium? That's right. Yeah. Yes. For electricity generation and sometimes for some other things. But you spent many years as a metallurgist. I should have looked up this answer before, but I'm going to ask it. So is uranium, uranium is not a metal, right? So what's the difference between being a metallurgist and what you did with uranium? Okay, so being a metallurgist. So metallurgists are really responsible for that system of extraction that I mentioned, the process of extracting valuable minerals from a bulk product. So metallurgists can work in any application. So essentially, we extract any mineral from any sort of bulk product. So that's why I could work in a gold industry and extract gold, you know, be responsible for the processes that extract gold, for the processes that extract copper. So as a metallurgist, you're sort of working in tandem. So the geologists are the ones on the front end. So geologists will assign, like they'll use drilling and they'll understand where the valuable metal is located and they'll blast over there. And that stuff comes up to the ground and it comes to my end, to the processing facility. And this is where the metallurgist looks after the processing. And this is the stages in which you have to, to process. Like I mentioned, you need to grind the rocks first, get them down to some size. You need to use cyclones and things that separate the fines from the bulks <laughs> solids. This is getting really technical. And then you add different chemicals and then you let things settle. So you let you know, you let your solids settle and then you get the liquor on top. You get that liquor and you do further processing. So it's quite, it's quite intense and quite time bound as well. So you'll notice that a lot of these manufacturing and mining facilities work 24 hours a day and it's a continuous process and just continues to flow. You continually have fresh ore coming up from the ground. It keeps getting processed and you end up with a drum of uranium oxide. You end up with a copper plate, which gets stacked in a <laughs> you know, stack of plates and gets sent to on a railway or on a port to the customers for further processing and whatever that can be. The steel industry, um, in iron ore manufacturing and all sorts of different industries use these products to make electricity to, for example, at our ammonia facility, one of the byproducts is carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is actually used in soda, like to make your Coca-Cola and your Pepsi. So bot in bottling, you know, so there's all these side, side industries where the byproducts can also be used. So very interesting indeed. <laughs> love it. Love it. I just want to go back to something you mentioned when you were talking about the separation process. You said that there's a liquor that floats yes. on top. What, what did you mean by that? The liquor? Yes. So if you can imagine, we've had, we've got rocks and dirt. So let's say an easy way for me to <laughs> explain it is to use dirt. So if you add dirt and water, so if you had a cup of dirt and you add water to it and you mix it all up, right, you're going to have murky water on top and your solids are going to sit on the bottom. So you now take that murky water because essentially the acid and the chemicals you've added have caused the minerals to now be in the water section. So you can take that murky water and you add some more products to that. And the stuff that comes out of that is now a new product. And that's the product you want. So each step, each process is intentionally moving your mineral from one state to another state. 
So I like to think of maybe copper is an easy one that we used to use in our science <laughs> experiments when copper sulfate turns blue when you add certain compounds to it. So that's the mineral changing state. So that's essentially what you're doing, <laughs> continually changing the state of the minerals and getting it into various forms until you get your final product. Yes, there's a television show that actually went into that, not with that substance, but with something else called Breaking Bad. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> it was the whole separation process, Brenda. <laughs> I also want to touch on something else you mentioned, which was about how it's a 24-hour process. Because on your YouTube series, you actually devoted one entire episode to the unspoken challenges that engineers working on a mine site have to deal with. Specifically, there were three things that you had been unaware of, one of which was the shift work. Could you yes. talk about that? So the shift work is very intense. So like I mentioned, 24-hour operations. So they typically have two shifts, a day shift and a night shift. And they will be 12-hour shifts by, by, by nature. And you often need to arrive on time or a little bit before your shift so you can understand what's been happening, get a bit of a handover process happening. And oftentimes, I mean, I was lucky. My mine site, I lived, you know, maybe nine kilometers away from the mine. So my journey was about, you know, 10 minutes on the bus. Where so was we, this? This is in Roxby Downs in South Australia. So about six hours north of Adelaide. It was a remote mining town with about 5,000 people. And most of those people work on the mine site in some form or other or in the little town. And what that entailed was waking up at five o'clock or so, getting your gym workout in, <laughs> going in, having breakfast and getting on the bus and getting into the town. If you had a car, you could drive as well. And then once you get there, you want to get there quarter to six or so, get changed into your high-vis protective equipment and then get into your changeover meeting and understand what's happened over shift. If you're running the concentrator process, maybe you want to have the handover with the person that you're handing over from. They'll let you know, oh, I missed the sample or something's a little bit off spec. Can you make sure you check it out in the first 20 minutes or so? So they'll let you know what, what needs to be handed over, what needs to be done. And then you go through the rest of the day, taking samples, you know, writing reports, generating investigations or following through and talking to people about, hey, what happened on this day? And a number of things. So my, my role throughout the 12 hours differed depending on which position I was in because I was a metallurgist and then I moved to a senior role and then I was an operations superintendent. So that's different applications across the, those roles. But after that, you'd finish up the day you know, towards six o'clock and have another meeting, hand that over to the night shift, get home, maybe do some exercise, eat. And if you're so buggered by the end of it, <laughs> you want to have another early night because you're waking up early again. So it does take a lot out of you. Some sites, the mine is actually 30 minutes, 45 minutes away. So you're waking up at 3.30, 4 a.m. in the morning and you're getting home at, you know, 7.30 at night. So, you know, before you know it, 15 hours of your day has been dedicated to something that's work-related. And you mentioned, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you mentioned that in this YouTube video that sometimes those 12-hour shifts could run for four days. Sometimes they could run for 10 days. And then you would get a number of days off after that. But you really were unprepared for how grueling it was going to be and kind of how lonely it would be as well. 
Yes. So when I had started my role at the mine site, I was doing a Monday to Friday job and that was 10 hours. So I knew, you know, the long hours were were there, but definitely shifting into a shift roster, waking up and particularly night shift is a challenging one because you sort of need to be asleep during the day when people are, you know, when there's traffic outside or people are hustling and bustling outside your room and making noise and it's bright outside. So trying to get decent sleep during the, the day so you can work a night shift. And, you know, it's, it gets lonely because people are not awake when you're doing your job or, you know, people are at different you know, different parts of their day, you know, so people, are, if you're meant to be sleeping while people are awake, then it gets lonely. And also you're in a remote location, you're alone. There's not many people to talk to outside of the workplace. And you've only got a few hours where you actually feel alive enough to do much that you just don't want to communicate. So you end up, it's almost like a, a Swiss cheese effect. Everything lines up such that you're tired, you, you're lonely, you don't have time to really have deep connections to network and you're in a, a strange place. And this was six hours away from my common friends, my friends and family that I knew having to learn to make new friends and get a new social network. So lots of things that come into play as you transition into a remote mining site role. And then as a woman, I think there was another layer of challenge. And you mentioned that it's changing, but I'd have to imagine it hasn't changed quickly enough. So you would have to wear, because you're dealing with different compounds that are extremely dangerous. So you would have to wear protective gear. And that gear wasn't made for a petite woman or a regular sized woman. It was made for a man, whether that be the jackets or the boots. Certainly. And that's correct. So often my jackets would be way over my, <laughs> my arms, you know, so you're trying to like shovel it on, but you know, you're cold. So if it's winter, you want your jacket and you need to be warm. So you kind of, it's a catch 22 pants, perhaps not really designed for the feminine waist or, you know, they don't sit just right. So you've got to have your belts, um, socks. Some ladies tell me they need to wear double socks just so that their boots, you know, the boots that you have to wear. If you don't have the right size for females, you want to, you know, put double socks on so you can minimize the blisters and things that will come as a result of that. So really as women who've come through the industry, they've now started to, I even know one lady who's started to design, you know, safety equipment, particularly for women, simply because <laughs> we, we're becoming more prevalent in the industry, shirts that are tailored to our bodies, um, pants that fit, jackets in our sizes, and even cool colors like pink and purple are also things that are on the menu now. So that's really exciting to see pink hats, pink hard hats, and, and those sort of things, paraphernalia, that just makes you feel like you belong, makes you feel included. And it may not have been on the agenda before, but certainly now a lot more discussion is around this topic. So what is it like for a woman engineer in your industry? We haven't touched on this yet. What has it been like? Have there been other challenges because of your gender being in this space? And what do you think our young listeners can expect to find getting into this industry in 2021 versus when you joined 15 years ago? Yes. So I think there's certainly been some decent changes. We still, I still hear lots of people talking about a boys club and I guess that's by virtue of a male dominated industry. We're going to see that there's plenty more men around than women, but you certainly, I certainly find there's a lot of support for women. There's a lot of 
people are now embracing women and wanting more women on, on the table. And really, I've now started to speak up a lot more and make sure I ask questions and I, I'm involved actively because I think part of the conversation, that's why I'm passionate about empowering women in the industry, Andrea. If you've seen some of my chronicles, I talk about how to build your visibility in the industry because as I inspire and as the industry inspires more women to join, we want them to be in a position where they actually speak up and start to challenge things that have been the norm. Like I said, this, you know, PPE, personal protective equipment for women wasn't on the agenda because perhaps there weren't many women around and no one spoke up about how uncomfortable it was or how when you've when you're on maternity leave, when you're pregnant, you have to just have your shirt with the buttons un, you know, unbuttoned because there is no maternity style top. You just have to unbutton your shirt, your, you know, your, your top. So it's around challenging the norm and speaking up and trying to be a face for change, essentially. So in 2021, things that you can still expect are that you will, you are an engineer. So come in being confident in your skills, come in being willing to learn, come in wanting to ask questions, demonstrate what you're doing, like keep people abreast of what you've been doing, the challenges that you've overcome in the industry, projects that you've worked on, and just keep let people know what you're up to, right? Because I think women like to work under the <laughs> under the radar. We don't like to self-promote. We don't like to talk about what we're doing. We think we can just put head, our heads down bum up and people will know what we're up to. But oftentimes we need to, you know, let people know what we're up to. So <laughs> I think that, that provides a small spotlight into the industry. I know there will be challenges. A lot of my friends sometimes get called diversity hires now. So there's another face to this challenge, Andrea. As we inspire more women in, some people, you know, people will be like, oh, you were just hired because you're a woman. So there's another layer where we need to also prove that we're, you know, we're worthy to be a here and we've got the skills and we've got the experience that has allowed us to be in this space. So uh, hold your heads high, <laughs> be prevalent and show up and keep talking about what you're doing. I think that's my advice to women. Or hear why Brenda makes such a magnificent coach for engineers. So yay. Thanks for tuning in to this K-Cup mini episode of Time for Coffee. If you want to listen to our entire caffeinated career conversation, please check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. <laughs>